is the all-new Whiskey and Stick Cigar Bar, centrally located in New Orleans at 2513 Bayou Road. There's a huge selection of bourbons and scotches for you to try and specifically curated selections of cigars at great prices. Also, there's the wonderfully appointed outdoor patio for smoking, and you can enjoy the fire pit, roast s'mores, or watch the game. And it's also available for parties. Ask about our gift cards, gift baskets, and customized cigar platters for your next event. Also in 2019, Whiskey and Sticks rolled out the Slow Your Roll Cigar Rollers. They'll be conducting on-site and off-site cigar rolling classes, and the hostesses are also available to come to your event and do live cigar rolling demos or to hand roll, serve, cut, and light for your guest. Visit our website at www.whiskeyandsticks.com or call 504-444-8454. It's Whiskey and Sticks. So, so today we have sausage that Mr. Volkerson has brought to us. You have two sausages here, right? I brought two sausages. You know, I'm not going to go anywhere unless I have some product because if someone doesn't know, they're going to know once their palate hits it and they'll say, oh, that makes my mouth feel happy and my tummy say yummy. Come on in here, girl. It'll make your mouth feel happy and your tummy say yummy. It'll do for you what you want it to do. It's where the rubber meets the road and the road meets the rubber. Don't be shy. Don't ask why. Come and get a little bit and you'll move on by. Bye bye, and it's good, and it's so good. Yes, indeed. Only in New Orleans, baby. It's your boy Wild Wayne. They gonna turn on shorty. Big one, we been in the new at it again wild wayne unchained man good stuff going on with the podcast big shout out to everybody that's out there uh listening worldwide we are growing uh we got listeners in south america in spain in canada all over the u.s i counted Almost every state in the country already. Man, get out of here. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a metrics guy. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm just ecstatic about that. Welcome to uh, the podcast life. Yeah. Uh, I'm Wild Wayne. Uh, got my, my co-pilot. Uh, introduce yourself, sir. Hey, man, it's me, man, Sean Roy. You know, from Shrewsbury, like I always say. Shrewsbury, man. Go ahead, say what you're going to say. Shrewsbury slash the Seven Ward. Well, yeah. We're gonna bring, yeah it we, looked like it keeps circling back to the Seven Ward. Weirdly and oddly enough, man, um, it's, uh, it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's strange because we started this podcast with a mission to uh, get this news and information out to the world. And, and, Ironically, I've been learning some stuff about myself. Right, right. You know, this has been a teaching moment for me. Right. You know, I know I know the world is getting a lot, but man, I'm doing some research behind the scenes and some stuff is opening up to me that I, I'm just, my mind is just blown. You know? I'm going to tell you the one thing that's very interesting to me in these conversations, and it's different people from different walks of life, and we've known a lot of these people for a long time. Yes. Include me and you. Yes. Uh, obviously, but... We never share stories like, you know, everybody's in the hustle and bustle of life and trying to get ahead and all of these crazy things that go on and life gets in the way. You don't talk about some of these uh, issues or the lineage. Yeah. And we are, I said six degrees of separation, but our guest today said 
two degrees of separation in New Orleans. Right. Uh, so this podcast is unapologetically New Orleans. Yes, without a doubt. Without uh, a doubt. And we've had several guests and we've done different things, but you know, it seems like it just keeps drawing back to that center mass. Uh, and I'm excited about that because that's the goal of this podcast is to share our stories, uh, our way, and hashtag we control the narrative. That's right. And and, and it's, it's funny because... Our guest, by the way, is Vance Volkerson. So it's a big name. It's a big name. Big name. And he's going to talk in a second. Continue your thought. And, and I, I was saying it's funny that uh, we're talking about the history of New Orleans, but it always circles back to food. Yeah. We always find a way to slide food. <laughs> that common diet. It's common. That, that's what New Orleans is. That's what we do. We party, we drink, and we eat. Right, right. Absolutely. And, and we have the pleasure today to have some good eats. And like Mia X says, you know, in, in a, a number of the things she talks about, especially with a cookbook or when she's being interviewed, we got to bring people back to the table. Right. And, that, and that's how I think we can share some of these these stories and these anecdotes and and, and the history. Uh, so we're going to jump into it because it's really hard to concentrate on this podcast when you got all of this good food. We got Vance Volkerson. What's up, man? What's up, Papa? How you feeling? I am feeling really good. I'm feeling every time we do one of these podcasts, I get super excited. We have compelling guests that got great stories or their movements are, are really good. And they represent uh, what's real about New Orleans to me. Um so, so how are you? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful, and I just wanted to thank you uh, for allowing me to come on your podcast and talk to you. You know, I've been a big fan of yours for a number of years. Stop it. And I can see how this platform is accessible to all these people around the world because your brand, not to date you, but for certain generations, uh, been a part of their experience. Yeah. And so I'm, yeah. I'm just very uh, thankful, and I'm very happy for you and, and, and the moves you're making and because you are truly a media star, so I can only see you going, so many places in the future man that that is that is beautiful today uh you came by and, and you brought us some treats here uh and if you don't know folks out there who vance volkerson is this is a name that has been synonymous with not only uh sausage making in new orleans uh creole culture in new orleans jazz fest in new orleans uh music in new orleans Seventh Ward, New Orleans. Uh, he just told me Alpha Phi Alpha in New Orleans. I didn't even know that. Uh, but but you brought us a couple of different sausages that we're gonna try today. We got a couple of other products. Um, what you got over there, Sean? I got a uh, Cajun Fire, man. Cajun Fire honey. Matter of fact, it's a new brewery. It's coming up in New Orleans. It's a uh, black owned. Mm -hmm. One of the few in the country. One of the few in the country, man. And they they're doing big things. They're out there in New Orleans East. Uh, Right by that old Jazzland facility, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. down, and they were—they uh, decided to bless us with uh, with some samples today, man. And then, and I tell you what, this is a good beer. And I'm not just saying it because it's here, but this is a good beer. Pass me one, cause I need to get need to get my drink on with it. Which which is the new brand on that? Would you like me to open it for you? Yeah, absolutely. It's the new Cajun Fire Honey. Yes. And also, big shout out to Elemanola. They brought us this very incredible black lemonade, which is uh uh, it's the bounce back lemonade. They said for all the folks out there that get it in late at night, you know what I'm saying? Say when New Orleans takes its toll on you, uh, you know, you uh, this that, bounce you back. You said that's what you want. Say bounce back. You said it's uh, it's a it's a remedy drink. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's got uh, activated charcoal, lavender, and cayenne. And I made sure we had some lemonade because I said Vance, what you drink? He said, Well, just. 
some Miller Lights. I said, well, <laughs> I said, well, that good picnic beer. That pony uh, baby. Sound like he, he really wasn't on the beer. So I wanted to make sure you had an option and lemonade. I said, you got to try this and you got to let us know what you think about it. Now, that, that's, that's not a traditional lemonade because that is very dark. Yeah, it's like, it's like a black lemonade. But it's like a black lemonade. Okay. It's, okay. The flavor in it is, is incredible. Gotcha. Uh, wow. You like? You like? It's delicious. Very, very... Uh, I mean, wakes your palate up, and mm-hmm. I can definitely see why it would, uh, you know, do the same for your system and your constitution. Really, really revive you. So, so today we have Cajun Fire beer, we have Elimenola. Uh, oh, that's good. And we have sausage that Mr. Volkerson has brought to us. You have two sausages here, what we got? right? I brought two sausages. You know, I'm not going to go anywhere unless I have some product because <laughs> if someone doesn't know, they're going to know once their palate hits it and they'll say, oh, that makes my mouth feel happy and my tummy say yummy. Okay. We got two good products today. I've got my perennial favorite Creole hot sausage, mm-hmm. um, which is a pork-based sausage we make. It's similar to historically the Creole chorizo that we've made for many generations. I'm a third generation sausage maker and as a family we've been doing it since 1899 hmm. and then I also brought um, our hot chicken sausage which is all chicken thigh meat seasoned the same way as our hot sausage and it just gives you another option if you don't eat beef or pork mm-hmm. so that you can have and it's also better on in terms of the overall nutritional analysis if you're trying to avoid certain things in your diet now how, how did your family get started in the sausage business I did a little research I, I saw that they were butchers first yeah, my grandfather was a butcher by trade, and uh, he, at, at, at one time, the uh, Circle Food Store, before it was the Circle, it was known as the St. Bernard Market. It was an open market where def- different people could come in and, and, and have stalls where they could either have their fruits and vegetables, they could do butchering, they could have their seafood, and people in the Seven Ward knew if you needed to go and get all of your uh, groceries and different proteins you could go right to the circle and it was also a part of our community mm-hmm. Seven Ward New Orleans has always been known for really being a true example of New Orleans community mm-hmm. uh, and it's also a very diverse history within the Seventh Ward having had uh, a mixture of people multi-ethnicities living next door to each other from the Italians to the, the Irish mm-hmm. to the Creoles of color both uh, white and black and um Oh, my grandfather had a stall, a butchering stall in the St. Bernard Market and uh, started to uh, develop a, a following there. And then after Mr. Herbert Gabriel bought the St. Bernard Market and made it into the Circle Food Store, all the vendors had to go and find uh, different places to uh, to set up shop. And uh, you had, uh, I believe, Mule's was one, mm-hmm. uh, Bashman's was another, uh, Volkerson's. We had a couple of places that we moved to. One was on the corner, I think my grandfather's first place was on the corner of North Johnson and St. Bernard, which some people may know was for a long time the Corpus Christi Credit Union. Yeah. yeah and then yeah. after that, we moved into a building that our cousins owned. Our cousins had a building, a pharmacy. It was called Belfield's Pharmacy. And it was on a place they called on the point, which is right on the point of Onzaga, where it starts, and St. Bernard Avenue. Mm-hmm. across from the yeah. autocrat and so we went in there and that was where we really um honed our craft and, and promoted our product and serviced the uh, surrounding neighborhood with a uh, Volkerson's meat market and then eventually um my dad took in a, his brother-in-law as a partner became Volkerson Bordenave meat market and then eventually it closed after my uh, uh uncle uh, Leon Bordenave passed and uh but we still made the sausage uh in various locations after that and then after that, my dad wanted to, my dad was more of an entrepreneur at a time when uh, we didn't have as many opportunities. I know uh, 
he was the first person of color to have a restaurant on Bourbon Street in the mid-60s called Vogelstone's Cafe Creole. We did that for about nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the restaurant, um, that's where the actual uh, brainstorm and founding of the concept for the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival was founded. We was at a meeting mm-hmm. between uh, Davis. Larry Bornstein and uh, George Ween uh, were friends, and George was doing the Newport News Jazz Festival, and uh, he was in there eating, and it was a, it was a session between he, uh, Larry Bornstein, my dad, Sonny Volkerson, and Alan Jaffe, who was uh, the manager of the Preservation Hall for Larry Bornstein, and they started talking about Newport News Jazz Festival, and then they said, well, how come New Orleans, the birthplace of jazz, doesn't have something that really contributes to our history and educates people on so we can celebrate, and so they kind of brainstormed, um, and from what I've been told, uh, George left that meeting and they had a, a, a young, snotty-nosed um, record store manager <laughs> by the name of Quint Davis that he asked to come and help him to put this thing on. And uh, for those that were at the first festival, um, it was more musicians there than there were actual people. But some of the things that were there at the first festival, you had Duke Ellington and you had uh, wow. uh, you also had... Uh, um, uh, what's, uh, the, the gospel singer, female, uh, very famous. Mahalia uh, Jackson, Jackson was yeah. there. Mm-hmm. But what people don't realize at that first festival, from what I'm to understand, is they had a young, young Jewish jazz aficionado that was loved to play the clarinet that was walking around um, just kind of incognito, uh, Woody Allen. Woody wow. Allen was there and uh, has always been a... Woody a, a, Allen? Woody Allen is a, is a, is a jazz clarinetist. I he has his own that. jazz band that tours the country. And he has been a huge fan of great musicians, especially uh, the Humphrey Brothers and the one that played the clarinet. I think he might have even purchased, tried to purchase one of his clarinets. Uh, now tell me this. Where was this original jazz fest? Where was it? Where, where did it take place? Uh, the original festival in 6970 took place at Congo Square. Uh, in Armstrong Park and uh, it was a small place and we had a lot of great vendors there some of you might remember um, uh, so did it have a different name at one point no it was always the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival no no the the square the square I I heard you in the interview say Beauregard Square and I was a little confused you know I don't I've always known it as Congo if I said that it may have been uh, a later um, name that so they did nobody it, ever call it that except yeah, maybe they, some elitist? Maybe, because, you know, a lot of those names, when they came into the city, they came in after the uh, lost cause uh, of the Civil War when mm-hmm. they started putting all those statues up and right, renaming right. things. And, and uh, But Congo Square was, was a square where the slaves used to go on their day off and they'd drum and they would dance and they would share cultural traditions. And um, it was really a seat of, of that... Um, place where in New Orleans, which is really because of the port being one of the largest in the world and and was the seat of so many people coming in there, you had you had Native Americans who were already here. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure that people understand that. Native Americans, the the homeless, the Chapatulas, the Choctaw, all of them were here already once this area was was uh, um Settled. Pretty much settled. Mm-hmm. Now what what you're saying now about the Native Americans, that ties in to our previous podcast. We talked about Bayou Road. Mm-hmm. and how Bayou Road led into the city mm-hmm. and which ran into Treme, and Treme, of course, is Congo Square. Mm-hmm. So in that the all quarter, ties yeah. in, too. Now, I heard you say earlier there was a young female gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson. Mm-hmm. Okay, Congo Square is located in Armstrong Park. Mm-hmm. Armstrong Park also has the Mahalia Jackson Theater. Right. correct? Right. So all of this has come full circle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we're thankful that those that were in power at the time 
decided to recognize those okay. who were true contributors to our culture mm-hmm. and our city. And Mahalia Jackson was definitely an ambassador, a worldwide ambassador for the city, like Louis Armstrong. And it's just amazing that that park, Armstrong Park, was named after Louis, as well as Mahalia getting the auditorium named gotcha. after her. Um, not the municipal, but the uh, Mahalia Jackson yeah. uh, Center. Gotcha. Uh, and, you know, we're just thankful that that's the case because there was uh, so many, so much branding that happened in the history of the city because of the people that were in control at the time. But we have a number of people who really deserve acknowledgement. I know when they took down the Robert E. Lee statue at Tivoli Place, which is, you know, Lee Circle, everybody knows, they said, well, what, what could we put back that would be representative? I said, why don't we put Oscar Dunn? Okay. Oscar Dunn was uh, Lieutenant Governor of the State of Louisiana. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Uh, had one of the largest uh, funerals uh, at Gallia Hall. Once he died, a person of color, uh, contributed greatly to the state's history. But, of course, unless we tell our narrative, like like you said, Wild Wayne, we have to control our narrative, but we also have to correct it and expand it into what it is completely, we won't know these historical figures because um, our school system does not teach these things. And, gotcha. and that is the truth. Uh, you know, I did homeschool for a while with my son, so it was really interesting to read what they were teaching my son gotcha. because they skipped so much. And then you wonder why the kids don't understand because you're going from A to D, and you're not telling them about B and C. Right. So w- without that context to the conversation and some candid, honest conversations, they will never understand the enormity of what has happened in this country. And, and obviously in Louisiana and in New Orleans specifically. And I'm really glad that you're, you're kind of telling some of this information and history. A lot of people don't know it. A lot of people have no idea. That's another one of our goals with the podcast. Like in 10 years... We want people to use our podcast as a reference point for the narrative without the abbreviations, without the spaces. So uh, I applaud the fact that you're really giving it a lot of texture and not just saying, oh, yeah, we did sausage. You know, it's so much more to that. Now, you did say that the whole Jazz Fest idea started in your family restaurant. Mm-hmm. And then it became a reality. So you guys are one of the original vendors. From what I understand, you're the only original vendor still standing. Yeah, we're the only vendor. It's, we're about to celebrate 50 years at Jazz Fest. Wow. And, uh, you know, um, having the oral history passed down uh, by my parents and then having lived it because, you know, my mom actually, uh, we had the restaurant on Bourbon. And what we did was we had our booth at the Jazz Fest the first year. So we would make the sandwiches at the restaurant, wrap them in foil, and then bring them to the booth mm-hmm. and serve them. My mom would be out there, and I was six months old, so she had to take me out there to to, to watch me. And I always tell people I was at the first festival, and they're like, well, you're 50, but the festival's 50. I said, yeah. And we, we've been at, you know, as a family business, and when you got everybody on point, everybody's got to do what they have to do. So, you know, we would do this festival, and then the second year it moved to the, to the fairgrounds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when it moved to the fairgrounds, it had maybe like six booths, six food booths. Wow. I know Buster Holmes Fried Chicken was one of the beginning mm-hmm. uh, vendors, and you had, uh, I think, Begay's uh, Restaurant was one original vendor. You had a lot of, lot of early people. And, I mean, from what my mother said, you know, those first years were very lean. I mean, you didn't have, it was, it was a, a new concept. Nothing like today. Is Nothing jazz like fest. today, you know. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until... As the momentum continued with the Jazz Fest and as more and more people started to come out and appreciate what this mechanism was, 
Um, and they started to add more of the food purveyors of the city uh, that had different cultural connections and contributions to the very fabric of what New Orleans is, mm-hmm. that you started to get an appreciation not only for the, the music that was presented and the, the, the arts and crafts and the traditions that were, 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 were given and were uh, made to be continued, but the food, the food was really one thing that really helped to grow the festival. And I got to tell you, back in 1976, mm-hmm. we had a New York Times food critic, Mimi Sheridan, came down. She wrote an article about the festival, and it was in the New York Times. And it really gave us some national um, uh, exposure, exposure right, right. to the food of the festival. She said, you know, the music is one thing, but you really got to know that this food is truly uh, the rising star. She came down in '76, and she did a uh, uh, she did one of these like a food contest, a best food at fest type contest, mm-hmm. food Olympics. She called it. Okay. And uh, she tried everything, and the winner of the food Olympics was Vokasan's hot sauce, Creole hot Damn. sauce. We won that 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 food Olympics at that time, and we were very proud of that. And for the successive years, going into the '80s and into the '90s, the growth of the festival was just amazing. And I gotta say, you know. So many people have contributed to it, not only the musicians, the local musicians that really, really laid the foundation and gave the world uh, a place to come and enjoy trad jazz, uh, New Orleans jazz and all of its formations. But, you know, a lot of our musicians got the opportunity to go to Europe and different places and have really just promoted our musical stylings to the world. And all those people come back to New Orleans and and, and to visit our city and, and, and experience Jazz Fest for what it is. And... Uh, and then the food has grown. We've got like 70 plus food vendors. We've got cultural designations honored. I think the Cuban uh, people have a, a tent now where their music is, is there. The homeless Indians were featured and have been featured. The Mardi Gras Indians have a stage. I mean, these are the traditions that when you say the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, that it needs to continue in order for it to truly still contain that name. Now, mm-hmm. as a lot of people know, the Jazz and Heritage Festival, as it has grown and has become big business, at one point, very big business. Um, festival Productions, which uh, started the festival and owns it, at one time, because they needed to grow and they needed to be competitive with this new destination festival market that was being created, like with Bonnaroo, Coachella, and some of the other ones, uh, AEG came in and partnered with Festival Productions and have really taken this festival truly to a worldwide stage. I mean, Jazz and Heritage Festival is a destination festival. They've marketed all over the world. And as you can see, for the 50th festival this year, to have a talent like the Rolling Stones to be given a day where they can come and provide an opportunity for people in the region to come and hear them perform. And some of the other major acts like Katy Perry. and, and Some uh, people are not happy about that, though. Well, yeah. You I, know, personally because because the I, I personally was not. The price point is a little steep for folks that maybe are not Rolling Stones fans. Right. You're absolutely right. And You're that, giving that, them one day. I really, one day, I really thought the that day. they should have done them like a concert during Jazz Fest time, maybe in the arena or something like that. Yeah, well, the Jazz Fest at one time did try nighttime concerts. They didn't work remember. out so good. They didn't work out. They didn't work out so good. And in order to maximize... Rolling the, Stones would have worked. But it takes away the festival feel when you do it at night. Exactly. Plus, plus you, got, you got your gate and all of your corporate uh, staggered... Uh, packages that you can you know maximize on that day. Right. And the thing about the the the, the Rolling Stones day, you're going to have other acts on that day. Yeah. It's just that when the Stones come on, all the other stages will close and be dried up. And then everybody <laughs> can then congregate to the go Rolling to Stone. the Stones yeah. stage. Now, yeah. I, I like the I like the uh, the history of the Jazz Fest. 
and that's 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 cool. But I want to know. I want to know the history of Vokasan sausage. I want to know what what as New Orleans being a food city, what makes this sausage stand out? What makes people say, you know what? When I walk into the grocery store, that's the one I want. Because the the the, the free the freezer the refrigerator the the, the sausage aisle is full. Mm-hmm. But what makes people pass over that that red and white box or pass over that cardboard box and go right to the focus on sausage? And and how do you make sausage? What is like how is sausage made? I'm, how's it made and how do y'all make it better? Because, That's what I want to know. Remember, we were talking and, and sausage had a sausage from what I understood was what was left over. It was the poor man's meat, I, I want to say, or maybe I'm saying that the wrong way, but it was was left over after all the final cuts were taken away, you know. So what, what you know, what was the the concept that you guys say, hey, we're gonna take these scraps and we're gonna make you want this, we're gonna make you guys crave this sausage because that's what's happening here. I mean, you can't see us, but we're eating this yeah, sausage this is and it's, stuff. It, it is good stuff. <laughs> you stop. What, oh. Well, I had to swallow my piece because I had to have some of that hot chicken, but um, <laughs> you know, first of all. From a historical perspective, when you're looking at this area and all those that have settled into this New Orleans area, because people got to realize historically, um, this area was here before the United States was founded. Mm-hmm. As you know, America bought the Louisiana Purchase. So we had cultural traditions, we had existence, we were here way before, and we had a number of different people that have moved to this area. My family makeup is, is, a, is a very diverse. We have... Um, we have African, we have French, we have Spanish. Uh, we also have uh, uh, a Polish, and then we have Jewish. And um, that came from the, the Alsace-Lorraine region of France. But isn't that the definition of Creole? Creole, when you look at how the, the, the word came around, you know, they're saying that Creole is actually, it came from a Spanish word, Creole. Okay. Mm. And um, when you look at the many variations of definitions, uh, I know Webster's may have it as first generation born of French settlers to the region is what they say Creole is. And that's why people got to realize Creole and the entomology of the word has changed over time based on how our society has grown and changed. So you've had it where some people have misbranded Creole and have kind of really made it into uh, first of all, they try to make it a race. You talk to some of these old Creoles in the Seventh Ward, and you say, well, what are you? And they say, well, I'm Creole. They say, well, are you black? No, I'm not black. I'm Creole. When And that's just because of the times they were um, educated or made to feel because of how our city changed and how race relations changed and how that that extra uh, caste system entity, mm-hmm. the Creoles, because mm-hmm. you, well, you had the, the, the French and the Spanish landowners you had a slave market that came into the town, and then you had either the, the offsprings of the French and the Spanish, and you had free people of color. Before you had the black codes and the one-drop rule and Jim Crow, you had a whole section of people who were free people of color who, if they were offspring of some of those French landowners, and those French landowners who, and I'm not going to go too far into the history, but you had things like the placage. The placage was a place where all these octoroon and quadroon mulatto women who were offspring of some of these mixed people through slavery and through uh, racial mixing, where these French and Spanish landowners basically took mistresses. They came to these placages, they met who they would take as a mistress, and if they had plantations where they would either do their art agricultural products, so whether it's cotton or tobacco or whatever, sugarcane, in the city they would have, uh, in the French Quarter, they would have homes where they would keep their mistresses 
and they would have children with the mistresses. And based on Napoleonic rules or certain other things, either they would give them their last name hmm. or they would give it to them upon death. Gotcha. So you have where in New Orleans you Probably have, mostly at death because they didn't want be. their business in the streets. Well, right. But that's probably, I guess, that term, a kept woman. Kept woman, right? It and probably came from came that from particular that. time. And you know who you know who was a, a kept woman? You know who was a part of the placage and had children? And uh, people don't know this was uh, Henriette DeLeo. Oh. Hmm. Henriette wow. DeLeo was a product For of the placage. St. Mary's, and right? Two, yes. And she's, right. In, she's a blessed uh, to be in the saint. But right. people got to realize even saints were human and they had a life before they, they became saints. decided to live and, and give their life to God. So, so was so was sausage was sausage part of the the the, the uh, menu then? Was was this always a food that the Creoles ate? Well, you know, sausage. You know, our uh, Polish uh, and German the connection the Germans in central and southern Louisiana settled in. They brought that sausage making mm -hmm. to the area. Um, uh, butchers by trade, when you would get say the meat that would come in would be same sometimes what they call a side it would be the the half of the cow hung up and then you would have to break that down you have to break that down into different cuts roasts um uh, spare ribs um steaks uh, steaks mm -hmm. and everything else all the trimmings because you couldn't waste anything because right. you paid for it by weight unlike today's world where we waste everything. waste everything they used everything they had to use everything so what a butcher would do butcher would take all of the trimmings and they would make sausage with it. Gotcha. And uh, it would to to save, excuse me, to save from the garbage can. Mm -hmm. So they'd make sausage with the trimmings. And then, say for instance, you go and you put your meats out, your steaks and your chops and everything. And say if they don't sell within a certain time frame, mm -hmm. well then you take them, you pull them out, and you grind them, and you make sausage. Gotcha. So mm -hmm. we would make sausage just to beat the the the, the garbage can. Okay. And mm -hmm. a lot of times the sausage, you'd have steak, you'd have roast, you'd have pork chops. It would just be, or it would just be the trimmings. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the chorizo would be a pork-based product um, that was made because uh, chorizo is more of the French term for not sausage, which is saucisse, but some people have seen the word chorizo, which is a Spanish word right. for sausage. Chorizo is more of the, the uh, French um, uh, uh, affinity of that word. And we would, you know, like most people in the Seventh Ward, you had a lot of people that had the corner stores. The Italians had the corner stores, um, the Irish. Uh, then you had Creoles of color. My grandfather, like I said, was a butcher by trade. He moved into his own business. And he actually did well during the uh, WPA, work, Workers um, Progress, Progress, so, Act. Progress Act. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we did well then because, you know, the, the, the uh, government would give vouchers for food and things like that. So we were making sausage. We were doing deliveries in the neighborhood. Uh, my dad would get on a bike and deliver to all the people at their houses. Um, people used to come in and get stuff on credit, and they'd the, pay the, at the, the at, modern day Uber Eats, huh? Modern day Uber Eats. <laughs> all this ain't new, right? Right. This has all been out recycled, there before. Huh? It's it's recycled. Recycled. It's just, uh -huh. it's the whole thing. And that's why all these youngsters they think all this is new. If you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it and not understand from whence it came. Right. All right. of this has all been established before. We just reinventing the wheel. Walmart so, delivery service. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 where what do we uh the uh the resurrection of, of, of sausage because at one time it, it sort of fell off. You know, it sort of took taken on a, a negative condemnation. Yeah. It's it, it 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 wasn't as pure or as good as it is now. What what happened? Well, being a sausage has always been, you know, sausage you can go back to sausage to the dates of the Roman Empire. Okay. okay. And sausage was always made 
um, in different uh, customs and in different um, ethnicities in different ways. And, you know, you had it where when sausage became popular, obviously people were trying to, you know, make it cheaply. They were trying to make different um, variations of the meat in there. Some would put non-meat uh, additions and fillers, thing, fillers in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, would market it. And it would just it just became a big thing. Then hot dogs and other things took off. You had Oscar Mayer, Brian, all this. And, no, you know, it's just a, it was a cheap product. Gotcha. And, you know, with you got enough marketing behind you and money, you can I can sell anything. anything. Right. Right. But I think what's happening is as people as you've gotten where people have access to information more readily through the Internet and through people realizing generationally, you know, I. I need to find this out for myself. I need to understand why, you know, uh, generationally my, my family has diabetes or we have cancer or we have whatever. A lot of it is because of the diets that we eat. Some of these people are getting educated and realizing we need to change our eating habits. We need to change the things that we need to, to seek out better quality foods. That's why, you know, uh, when it comes to sausage, what we try to do is we try to make it with no fillers. Well, we make it with no fillers. We use just the meats that we say is in it. We season it, and we try to give you a representation of what has always always been culturally significant to our neighborhood, to our people, because it's about making sure that what we put out, when you whether you eat it when you're 80, 50, or 20, your palate will recognize the traditions from whence that flavoring came. Now, I'm glad that that's what you guys use and embody in your product because I don't eat a whole lot of hot sausage sandwiches. People are like, you're from the ones. Tell me about where to go get the best hot sausage sandwich. I'm like, I really couldn't tell you because I don't care for it. Like when I would see hot sausage in a lot of places around town, like you said, it, it felt in my mouth like a cheap piece of meat. It felt like it was really thin and no body to it. It felt like, not felt, but the look of, Maybe they put red dye in it or something. I don't know. Uh, But it was not a good flavor to me, so I'm not a huge hot sausage fan. But I do like a good sausage. Mm -hmm. And and I think uh, maybe it's the fillers that I never really, really like. Because to me, it just tasted like mass. Um, What I do like about this sausage, it does have body. You know, people are going to hate me for this, but I hate D&D sausage. I think it's the most terrible sausage in the world. A whole lot of folks be mad. And D&D ain't sponsoring my show, so I don't even care. Uh, but it, it seems so mealy when you cook it, you know? Like, it's like whatever they put to fill, I guess fats or bone meal or soy or whatever. Cereal fillers, I think, must all cook out of it, and it's terrible. I know you're looking crazy over yeah, there. Well, you talking about D&D. It's sacrilegious, can, but I don't care. I don't, yeah, I don't care for it. I mean, maybe you can elaborate on this, but it, it feels like, a form of grit or something inside the sausage. It's it. I know it's not meat, and I'm not saying D and D. I'm just saying cheaply made I don't sausage. Like D and D. But, right, but what is it? What is, is it? Do they? Is it a filler? Or what happens yeah, to yeah. the sausage? And we noticed this also. I'm, I'm gonna let you uh, elaborate. But I noticed this that this sausage, it's actually round. It's 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 almost the size that that it was when you took it out of the packaging. A lot of sausage cooks down, and it's really really small. It shrinks. What happens? What? Why does that happen? Well, you know, you're going to have it where, you know, some people will try to figure out formulations uh, so that they can maximize their profit. I mean, so in the sausage industry, uh, hamburger patties, things like that, you know, there have been fillers that have been approved to be used. And those fillers, 
uh, you can add like water to it. It would bind to the filler as an artificial protein. See, the thing that most meat is, is protein. So when you add liquid to it, a certain amount of liquid can bind to the protein. It'll stay. Um, if you don't have a lot of protein, you, you can't add water uh, to it. Um, so you add fillers, which act as a binding agent, which helps you to add that extra water, which helps add in the margin and, and, and possibly the texture as well as moisture. Mm-hmm. But, and I'm sure some companies have used it and being in an industry, you, you got people that, that do it in different, uh, food types, not just in sausage and a lot of meat products and a lot of different things. Um, but the, the, I'm just glad the consumers are. Uh, getting more educated, have more information. You should read your labels. You should research these products based on whatever your dietary needs are, or what you're looking for in regards to what you eat. I just wanted to uh, maintain uh, a tradition. Uh, you know, uh, sausage making in New Orleans, uh, the Creoles who have done it, there's not many of us left. I know of two, myself and uh, Kevin Bashman, and we make uh, authentic Creole hot sausage. And you have a lot of companies who because of uh, they wanting to take the brand and and use it uh, for their, uh, because of the, it's become popular, they call things Creole or Creole style, but they don't know about the traditions and the culture and what actually goes in it, which makes it Creole. And I think that it was, like, everybody remembers uh, this whole Cajun craze that came about. And... Um, you know, Acadiana and the Cajun peoples. Uh, everything that, was blackened for this one particular period. It was about that particular Cajun seasoning. Food, Cajun and food and everything. All else. over the world. But as you say, and, and what your theme in your program is about the narrative control, what we found was Cajun was equated with certain groups of people uh, who happened to be uh, of Caucasian ancestry and certain people who were trailblazers at the time in regards to cooking shows and presences like Justin Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Poudon, who's from the Opelousas area, um, they were the first uh, uh, machinations of this whole uh, food genre of, of Cajun. But what people don't realize is Cajun, where Acadiana is, around mid-1985, uh, Governor Edwards decided to f- officially call Acadiana, Acadiana. It wasn't always officially called that. And and gave certain contributions to the name Creole, but Acadiana was originally called the Creole Triangle. Mm. Creole Triangle. Creole Triangle. And the Creole Triangle was, uh, like for instance, where Paul Poudon is from, there's parts of that area where on one side, like in a lot of parts of New Orleans, a lot of parts of the state, you had one side where you had, say, the white Poudons. On the other side of the tracks, you had the Creole Poudons. And when I say Creole, uh, Creoles of color. Because gotcha. people got to realize Creole is a culture. So you have white Creoles. You have uh, uh, Creoles of color, Legion de Couleur. And then you also have those that come up within the culture and that have been a part of it. So we could actually make an argument for, say, the Vietnamese community that has lived here, that has a French influence. They can be Creoles? Technically, they wow. could be a part of okay. the Creole culture. Okay, okay. If you look at what makes a person Creole. Gotcha. And if we ever get to the point of re-educating ourselves and understanding that Creole is not a race, Creole is a mixture of multi-ethnicities and the, the contributions to what made us into this culture, 
then you realize you have French white Creoles that are uh, that need to reacknowledge their culture because all these French surnames, all of these Spanish surnames, uh, they're 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 uh, Creoles. Mm. But because of the time frame and because of what happened, you have it where there's a lot of dark skinned people in the city who have French last names, Spanish last names, who, because of the way their families were ostracized because of their skin color, don't realize they're part of the Creole culture or don't want to acknowledge it because of the negative history that's a part of it with the brown paper bag and all those ugly things that light-skinned Creoles did to try to maintain some status within the community. And then you had, and even in families, even in my family, we've got, I've got cousins who are very dark, who are the whole rainbow of colorism. But because of colorism, don't know their history, have gotten away from the Creole culture because of the negative stigmas that have been associated with it. You have white people who are Creole, but don't associate themselves with their culture because currently Creole is associated with peoples of color. Mm -hmm. So because of our history and because of the race mixing that happened with slavery and other things, you have people that don't want to say I'm Creole because the assumption will be, oh, you must have some some black. Some black in you. Right. And the point is, you got white Charbonnets, you got black Charbonnets. You've got white um, Haydells, like the bakery. Mm-hmm. And you have Creole Haydells, same spelling, mm-hmm. and they are related. Different diction. Ankylades. 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 Sigur. Sigui. You got all of these. They're all related. And so it Boutes, all of them. You got white and black. Even Tony Sacheray. Gotcha. I have a friend of mine, Garrett Sacheray, Mr. George Sacheray. He told me they went to a, 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 a reunion around Opelousas. Okay. And then they had the white sachets that came. That's related to Tony. Mm-hmm. Because they know in the country, they know who their people are. Mm-hmm. They may not promote it, but they know the connection. Once we start educating our younger generations and those like yourself, Rawls, who when you talk to people and find out that oral history from others, you can make a better connection as to your cultural connection, the people you're related to, and how much the people that you're related to and those people on the periphery of your family have contributed to the culture. So, you know what? I have two things with that particular piece of your conversation. Number one, like that's one of our goals with the podcast, you know, to have people speak unabashedly about their history, whether it be personal history or their community history or the segment of people that they're from. Uh, But then at the same time, the other part of what we do with this particular podcast, and I think even furthermore across the city is, number one, how do we share these stories to make sure that they don't die? And secondarily, how do we protect them from the culture vultures? Because that's going on like in in a major way. Of course, uh, New Orleans has always been, you know, uh, one of the epicenters of the world, you know? Uh, people don't realize like we were that that city, you know, uh, 1800s wise. Everybody wanted to be in New Orleans. We, you know, we fell off a little bit. And now it's kind of circled back. Like you said, it's cyclical. Like everybody wants to be in New Orleans, visit New Orleans, move to New Orleans, emulate New Orleans. Like how do we protect the culture? How do we protect the food? How do we protect the neighborhoods? How do we make sure, and I say this because I am black, obviously, that blacks or Creoles continue to be a part of what goes forward and it doesn't get all snatched away. I'm going to say specifically cooking. 
Uh, I've listened to a number of other podcasts and they talk about barbecue, right? I listen to a lot of barbecue because I love to grill. I love to barbecue. And they say, you know, back in the days, people didn't even want to fool with barbecue. It was like for the poor man. Now you got tournaments and festivals and, and what have you where barbecue is that thing. But they only do brisket, you know. People didn't used to do brisket. People did sausage. People did pork chops. People did uh, chicken. You know, now it's it's elevated and people no longer talk about the core of it. But I, I think that same thing happens with New Orleans food. Like we don't have a lot of black top executives in restaurants. We don't have a lot of blacks front of house. We don't have a lot of blacks in the business portion of it. Like what do we have to do to make sure that the indigenous people of this area don't become bystanders and outsiders looking in. Well, you know, New Orleans, like you said, our port and our location and the people that came through, you know, we were truly at one time before the Americanization of New Orleans. And I want to say that because what we had was our existence before the United States came into to, uh, uh, founding and after, when the Civil War came and you had the, the Northern occupation down here, uh, a lot of people questioned our traditions, questioned our mixing, questioned uh, how we lived in the way that we did, which is a very European uh, lifestyle. And over time, you know, those things, those questions and those change as generations and as we started to evolve into being a country and a state and everything else, Maybe not the Polanic codes. People always question, you know, it's so different, mm -hmm. but we still have them. And some of them are rooted in that European lifestyle, that French lifestyle. I think that where we have this after Katrina and this newfound, uh, because of uh, access to information and promotion through internet, through, through cable, through so many places where you can learn about our culture and you can uh, read about our food and you have so many people who go about and promote uh, Creole cooking finally has mm -hmm. we gotten the national stage similar to when Cajun took a national craze in the 80s. Creole, people are understanding that Creole is truly the food culture of New Orleans. Cajun is not of New Orleans. Creole is. And Creole is a contribution. It's a multi-ethnic contribution. You have African, you have French, Spanish, you have West Indian, you have uh, Native American. All of these, the elements, the seasonings, the preparation, all of them are contributions from all these different people. And so as people come into our city and reestablish after Katrina and see the opportunities for development, the one thing that we have to do, first of all, is we really have to take ownership and control of our culture. We have to acknowledge what we are. We have to learn the history. We have to participate within the rituals in an educated manner. Because one of the problems I have is like with Second Lines. Second Line was a very, very, um, very uh, serious tradition that came into the passing of someone in the funeral tradition. Right. First Line was the family and the casket. And when they would break off and go to the funeral, to the burial site, the second line would be the uh, friends, family, and other people in the band, uh, and they would continue to uh, dance and, 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 and do more up-tempo jazz music in celebration of the life. Mm -hmm. Well, now, if David Bowie dies, they have a second line. 
If <laughs> Prince dies, they have a second line. And a lot of that is formed by people who really don't understand the traditions and the history. Right. And that is a, a solemn thing in our society. Maybe and, they should rename it to something else and not yeah. just so loosely use that second line term. It's like they're raping Out of the reverence. Culture. They should just call it a parade. They, I mean, I mean you rather there than a second is. line. Bro, the David Bowie parade. Right. right. But because there's a, they go get a second line band or, or a uh, brass, brass band. band. Then they, you know, they, they but, tend but to miss that's because it's the end thing. That, that's the cool yeah, word. That's the problem. That's, that's the problem. You know, this whole end thing, creating uh, um, uh, sections of culture and, and making it up as you go. Um, but it's, it's people that don't know no better. Well, they don't. And unless you have, an, unless you have a, a strong narrative, unless you have a voice that can reach and combat what is being promoted, then that, that narrative which has always been maintaining control. We can look at so many aspects of society. You can look at all of those publishers that put the school books in the schools. All of them was edited to um, minimize our history, minimize slavery, minimize our contributions. So many times we have it where uh, the news, uh, what was told to us, what was given to us, was made in a fashion so that we could be uh, kept in a certain place. Mm -hmm. We have been divided for so long as a group, colorism and the the, the division between light skinned Creoles and and and, and dark skinned Cla classism, classism as well has been promoted by those in power because if you keep them separate, they cannot gather together to to ask for a better way of life. That's happened since since the 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 start of this country. Though. Start of this country. Like it's intentional. Like I think folks sometimes think it's accidental or oh somebody was in their feelings, but it's very intentional on the underbelly of this country's design on figuring out ways to separate people or make them war against each other while they were doing something else on the other side while these folks were fighting, mm -hmm. especially amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely know that. So I, I, I want to make sure that we continue to talk about these things on this podcast or even if you're out there listening, like have those very intentional conversations with people to find out about them. Find out about their history. Find out about some of those things because, once again, if those uh, oral traditions are not um, cultivated, like, they get lost. Yeah. And then the story has someone else that tells it the way they would like the outcome to be. So yeah. that's really important. Uh, I did want to ask you, uh, are y'all redoing the building over across from the autocrat? Is that your wish to remake that into a, a viable Volkerson store? Yeah, you know, part of it was... And, and this is a two-part question, mm -hmm. so you don't have to be long-winded. You can tell me yes or no. Okay. Um, did you buy the property across the street? Are you a real estate developer as well? Okay. So, first part, first, first part the store. Second I, part... I, gotcha. The store, yes. I'm working on a development deal uh, with some different groups to come back, rebuild the building, and put our... Um, uh, new concept in there, which is we're going to go back to the two parts of us in our family history. One, we had a restaurant as the first mm. um, person of color to have a, a business on Bourbon Street with Vogelstone's Cafe Creole in the 60s. And then we had our meat market and our mobile concessions that we do to this day. The, the new business will be where you can come in and you can get short order food made within the Creole traditions, but you can also come and we'll have a deli where we're making the sausage in there, we're making the hogshead cheese, we're making the boudin, and you can come in and buy it as well as eat it. Mm -hmm. And then we want it to be a communal place, which is uh, what the Seventh Ward is about. And so many of our businesses that used to exist 
people used to go there and it'd be a part of their community. They'd be a part of their stop. Mm -hmm. So we want to bring people back to the seventh ward. You come in not only as locals, you come in and get product to take out of town or to eat for yourself, but all those people that come in town from the tourist industry to come and so we can educate them as to the culture, foodways, and make sure that we can contribute to the narrative so that when people come in town that they just don't look for Cajun food, right. that they come in and get something you know, that's only a genuine a, product. Only an Uber away from the quarters. Huh? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that area, you know, St. Bernard, Claiborne, uh, Galvis, it's always been traditionally a, a, a viable area. Mm-hmm. Uh, that street, as opposed to, say, some of the developments on Ferret Street, and on Aretha Castle Haley, that street is one that we needed to develop. I saw it as uh, a place because of the number of uh, dormant commercial buildings, uh, a lot of businesses that had stopped operating I was looking after too. Katrina. I was looking too. That we needed to, uh, as a stakeholders, people who own businesses and own property in the area, to maintain our presence because a lot of people know that when you start to get the uh, early stage of uh, gentrification, people come in, they buy the property, they start living in the area, they starting to do the racial mix. Um, and then they start scooping up all the property and then yes. before you know it, the culture is wiped out. Mm-hmm. It's homogenized with just basic businesses uh, that you can find at any off-ramp in any part of the country. And uh, it then loses a part of its racial mix. One of the things that I, I looked at, knowing that model, and I saw it starting to happen was I wanted to make sure one of the things we didn't have post-Katrina, a lot of people were crying about was affordable housing. Right. And still are. Still are. So... We always had a, a property next to our building, which used to be um, uh, the Sacred Heart Church and School. School was torn down many years ago because Sacred Heart was the white parochial Catholic school and church that was built and was down two blocks down from the black Catholic school and church, Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's Once right. white flight happened and people started leaving the area, they abandoned the school. And at one point, the Archdiocese gave the Sacred Heart School building to Corpus Christi. Some of those classes actually attended school at Sacred Heart. Okay. The church was closed. And the thing about the Sacred Heart Church was that the Sacred Heart Church's history, the the church was the first church under Archbishop Janssen who officially segregated the Catholic Church. Before... Hmm. You had it where blacks and whites were going to church together. The blacks would be in the bottom in the front. Blacks would be in the back or in the uh, choir loft. The people started to really say they didn't want to go to church with blacks. Bishop Johnson, Sacred Heart was the first church where they took the sacramental records of all the people of color and moved them to Corpus Christi. And then if you wanted to get married, baptized, confirmation, they told you you could not do it at Sacred Heart anymore, you had to go to Corpus Christi. The first documented case of segregation in the Catholic Church. And so this school and this building and this area has always been there. It now is known as the food for families distribution out of church. Commodities. Commodities. Everybody get the commodities over there. A line of cars. Down St. Bernard. Right. So you get aggravated, waiting in traffic. Waiting in traffic. Trying to, right. Uh, but nonetheless. And then and then uh, the parking lot was used, uh, Autocrat used it for parking. Right, right. Well. But not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> I started to just really ask questions and talk to people. I had a friend of mine who was a real, worked in real estate development. He worked on the Harris Hotel. He worked on um, Blue Plate, worked on a lot of things. And he's like, you know, you can do this if you put the package together the right way. 
So I started talking to people, talking to development groups. And what we did was we put together, I talked to uh, Sandy Stroud, who has Urban Focus uh, Development Group. She started the real estate department at Tulane. And then we started soliciting different groups. We talked to Providence Community Housing, mm -hmm. uh, Terry North, the director, got her on board. They actually had the land at one time. No. Uh, let it go because they were going to put scatter site housing there. No. We talked to her no, about no, the fact no. that we needed more, more affordable housing because of the timing. So they were like, well, we needed to get a big box developer to help pull it off. So Columbia, Res Columbia Park was just built on St. Bernard at the old housing development for St. Bernard. St. Bernard Project. Mm -hmm. I got in contact to the principal over there at Columbia Residential, which is out of Atlanta, and talked to him, had a meeting with him at Dookie's and pitched the whole process and concept of joining this group. He agreed, and from there... We then optioned the land from the archdiocese, went through the city government, city planning. I went through city planning. I went to the council. We pitched all of this, and they approved it. We got the, the overlay, and once we got it approved, we, we had to then figure out financing. What people don't realize in real estate development, the smaller the project, the harder to get the money. Right. Because right. on the back end, you're not going to make as much. Right. So we, this is only 53 units. You have the church has eight. And, and what's it called? It's called Sacred Heart St. Bernard. Okay, okay. And it's 53 units. We took the church and put it back into commerce. It has eight apartments and a communal area. And then we have the other apartments are in the main building, which is the same massing and size of the old school building, a little mm -hmm. bit higher. And it has one-bedroom apartments and some two-bedrooms. It's a mixed, uh, mixed uh, unit in that it has market rates as well as affordable in it. 60% of it is affordable housing. So we um, got what that you got? approved. Tiffs to make up the balance. Was it the tax credits or something? We like got that? some. We got historical tax credits okay. mm -hmm. to uh, to finance it, and then we've gotten some other. You can layer the financing over time, and I got some of the idea actually. Dwayne Boudreaux, when he was, you know, the city was. The community wanted Circle back so much because Circle was such a model of resurgence and New Orleans coming back. And I remember Dwayne Boudreaux saying, you know, I, I, I want to come back, but I don't want to be in debt. I don't know what this neighborhood is going to settle into. It hadn't settled into anything. Right. And, you know, but he got with uh, Daryl Berger, they did a, a, who did the Jack's Brewery. They did a third-party development deal, helped him to package the deal together, and the circle got built and opened. The city gave money, everything else. It was great. The problem was... Or is... Or is, is that the neighborhood didn't settle into what it could be economically. So... You had you had different um, you had other things that were in the neighborhood, different grocery options, mm -hmm. and you know the circle was one where people used to walk there from the neighborhood. They were they they were traditionalists. They went there. You know now it was just different. You had a different mix of people. You had about some time went on, and it it, it from what I understand, it's closed now. But and you know what I found? Like a lot of the people that moved into that area had no idea about the history of the circle. They didn't know. So it wasn't that nostalgic. Uh, feeling, I'm going it back meant, to the circle. Yeah, it meant nothing to you know, it, nothing it, to it was nothing but a space. In, in, uh, this is for another show because eventually we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the the Claiborne Interstate Corridor and how it really changed the whole makeup of that whole particular dynamic, neighborhood right. uh, and neighborhoods along that entire strip from uh, Claiborne and Elysian Fields all the way down to Claiborne and Canal. It changed the dynamics of that entire area. And we'll talk about that at some point. Uh, but I think people just didn't understand like the value of Circle or knew the story because I used to walk there as a kid. My grandma, let's go. We walk into the Circle. We talked about that in some other uh, podcasts. But 
nonetheless, you saying it's closed is is uh, pretty disheartening because it, it was a cultural hub. It wasn't just a grocery store. There were services there. You know, it was. You said it was an open air market. You know. Well, prior to prior being a circle, to, yeah. but even once it was a circle, it still was a market per se, not just a supermarket for groceries because there were other things going on there, almost a la what it was before, just with a cover on top. Um, so nonetheless, man, uh, I want to tell you congratulations on everything that you've done uh, so far. And big shout out to your family because I think it's important that we big up the families uh, that were influential in building New Orleans into what it was and even if it was sausage making or it was maybe that that space that birthed the jazz fest those are important things for our city and we got to make sure that these stories get out to the public um my question to you is before we wrap up is what is Volkerson sausage going to do going into 2020 and 2030 and 2040 you know with the uh, storm wiping us out and uh, us trying to come back, and what people don't realize is when you have a small family business, if you don't have all of the infrastructure in place and you don't have everything worked out, it mm -hmm. can be a lot of issues. Right. Um, it took us a while, um, and I also had to, you know, uh, figure out what would be the best way to come back, or if come back, because you got to realize it's a family business. My dad had died in '98. Uh, the storm took the building. Uh, my cousin who was my office manager got depressed during the storm and killed herself wow. so there were all of these things that made me say well damn well maybe i shouldn't do it you know maybe it's time to let it go no well, don't do it we were in new iberia and um i got a call of people reached out to me from the jazz fest and said look we're gonna do jazz fest i said well i don't have a place to make it i don't you know whatever but they were like well, we're gonna do it if you can do it we'd love you to have you so i found a place to make product um and that, that uh, was in New Iberia? No, no, this, this was in Metairie. in Metairie. Actually, it was a okay. competitor. Came back. Okay. A competitor. Wait, hmm. competitor opened the doors and, and Yeah, because he was you. he was trying to rebuild too. You know, they were affected in Metairie I too. Mean, that's, that's respect. And, that's, and, that's and he knew respect. of our product. I knew of right. him and, and says, look, I just need to make stuff for the festival. Gotcha. And I told him how much I needed to make. I didn't know how much with the first year back. And uh I made enough to fill up one of his coolers. And, you know, he told me the story later. He said, Man, you know, we made all this product and it was full. I said, no way you're going to sell all that. And gotcha. so he said the Monday after the first week in the Jazz Fest, he opened the door and they didn't have any product in there. Wow. And he said, what happened? I said, well, we sold it. I said, and guess what? We got to make it all again for right, this weekend. Right, right, so it, it That'll created, change your mind. Yeah, it created That'll a relationship. He needed volume. I needed a place to make product. And, you know, I've, uh, I've been trying to do it in a way where, you know, you got to look at the market. You got to look at, you know, coming back at a point where you can maintain and grow, and uh, it's been a long road for me. I had, um, my wife got sick during the storm and I had to take care of her, and then uh, my mother got sick and I had to take care of her and, and she died. So I got to a point where, I, you know, people would say, man, when you coming back, how can I order it or how can I pick it up? And I'm doing festivals and I'm doing the French Quarter Fest where we're an original vendor, and Jazz Fest, and I do a blues and barbecue, and I do Po' Boy Fest where I'm original vendor, and all these things. and. People are like, where can I get your product? And before the storm, we were in all the grocery stores in the city. We were in Schwagman was our first store. Wow. Schwagman. That's Schwagman a throwback. That's store. a throwback. And to answer your thing about Circle, Herbert Gabriel was a good friend of John Schwagman. And so the concept for Circle to have everything under one roof mm -hmm. was suggested to him by Schwagman. That's wow. why you could get your bills paid there. You had a doctor there. You had a dentist. You had all that at the Circle. You get your school uniforms and everything else. <laughs> 
So, but um, when, it, you know, and, and trying to do that, and I tried in different ways, but, you know, it's just, you got to try to just be smart about it. So now I've been working at it. The housing thing came about because that was the most immediate need. And my thing was, if we could get investment in this neighborhood, one big investment, people will see and they'll start coming. Right. So once we built that, then all of a sudden, um, uh, all the McDonald tore down the uh, credit union and they're going to put housing. Okay. Then you had- That was my idea. I was right there. I thought that would have been great condominiums. Well, he's going to put, and, gonna and put a mixed unit development. I, I saw the press release. Yep. And then, and then they had, redid the library as well. We did the library. We fought for that. That was the last public library in the city to get redone. No, they they, they, they did it. a fabulous job on yeah, it, by the way. Fabulous job. And then Corvus Christi was able to rebuild the old school building and make it a community center, 56,000 square feet, mm-hmm. multi-purpose community center. Because the archdiocese, who had gotten FEMA funds for all the churches to rebuild, decided to close and merge Corpus Christi with Epiphany, mm-hmm. took the money that there was FEMA had granted and gave it to a new development of a church across the lake. Gotcha. The Corpus Christi community, led by Dimitri Mercadel, fought for that money, about $16 million, wow. got them to give it back, and that's how they funded to get the community center done. Mm-hmm. Now, now, this development you're talking about, you're speaking of, you're, you're going to have your restaurant as well as your deli, you say. I'm gonna have my deli and some short order food, and gotcha. we also have uh, we're gonna have two uh, permanently affordable apartments on the top and one on the bottom. But until then, right? Until this is open, how how can we get what we have in front of us today? How can we? Where do we go get? Yeah, how can I need we get to get our this hands on a regular. I know I got your direct line, but people need to know. Yeah. Well, what we're doing, we're working real close to the time frame where, uh, you know, with the festivals, what we want to have is we want to have our website up and refashioned so that we can start taking orders again. Um, I'm also looking at getting some uh, retails uh, where I can get some retail packages made uh, with this private label company that I'm working with just to have it where we can put product out there. I also have a product that I'm designed for that dog, which is on their menu. If you want some Vocasons, hot sausage dog, you can go to that dog and eat it at any of their locations. So we're trying to make smart moves to get our brand still out there and to make a move. So the next thing will be just look forward to us having some stuff in a retail, whether it be a grocery store or a smaller market, as well as uh, I sell my product to the Munch Factory uh, uptown. I also have it at the backyard in Lakeview. Mm-hmm. And we have been providing our sausage to Dookie Chase for over 75 years. Oh, and wow. you can go to Dookie's and the sausage that they serve. It's in the actually, gumbo, right? It's in the gumbo. Yeah, it's in everything. Yeah. So, um, and we're just steadily building more and more customers as we continue to build our infrastructure so that we can better serve people. Because once we start, we're going to roll, baby. So is your website up now? Or are you it's, revamping it's, it's, it? It's up now, but you can't order. We're going to redo it so that you can order and we can ship to uh, now all kinds of That will be the sausage and the patties or just the sausage? That's going to be the sausage. Um, and eventually we're going to get to the point where we can make the patties. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I just don't have the, the equipment uh, at this time, but we're working on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, once we get all that in place... Uh, you'll be able to order it and, and get it shipped to your door. Man, super incredible podcast today talking with Vance Volkerson. Yeah, yeah. And this sausage is good. Yes, I'm just sir. trying to tell you, man, I appreciate you stopping by the podcast today and uh, really giving us a really in-depth piece of New Orleans cultural history uh, in adjacent to all your great sausage stories and the things that you guys have uh, accomplished for what 200 years almost well since 1899 and i gotta tell you you know um i'm very thankful for this opportunity 
uh, for you and Mr. Rawls to invite me to come do this. And I'm going to speak very candidly on our history as many times as I can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And moving forward, all we ask is that people, when you're looking to learn about our culture, um, look for those businesses that are still here that promote the culture positively mm -hmm. and that who give the full narrative, whether they are businesses owned by people who are considered Caucasian, who are um, people of color, um, uh, Oriental, I mean, I'm sorry, Asian or uh, Native American. Mm -hmm. All these people have a connection to the Creole culture. Just make sure that you seek out the truth, the complete narrative. And you understand because it's a rich history, it's a beautiful history, you find out that this city was built on that culture. And we just ask anybody who moves here and comes in here, just seek out the information and you'll see why you have become a part of a great and wonderful tradition. Now, what's the website? I don't think you said the website. Uh, www.vokersonsausage.com. That's V-A-U-C-R-E-S-S-O-N-S-A-U-S-A-G-E.com. And as those old barkers used to say in the neighborhood when they used to sell fruit or they used to sell like Mr. Okra and all them, we're going to tell you, if you come see us at the festival, I'm going to say, come on in here, girl. It'll make your mouth feel happy and your tummy say yummy. It'll do for you what you wanted to do. It's where the rubber meets the road and the road meets the rubber. Don't be shy. Don't ask why. Come and get a little bit and you'll move on by and by and it's good and it's so good yay hey big thanks to uh Vance Broker song big shout out to uh uh our folks LMN OLLC with the uh the great bounce back lemonade as they say it and uh, also shout out to Cajun Fireman provided us with the libations for the show uh, big shout out to C. Smith uh, doing a phenomenal job once again on, on the engineering of this particular podcast. Shout out to my man JT Jonathan Thomas on the cams. Whoa, he brought some drones and everything. I feel like we're graduating to something <laughs> much bigger. World get ready. The Wild Wayne Unchained podcast is here. We are unapologetically New Orleans unapologetically black and we are doing our thing how do you eat an elephant baby <clears throat> one bite at a time aye, aye, aye. big chief got the soul go to the mom bring them out to him big chief got the soul go to the mom bring them out to him big chief can't go go to the mom bring them out to him big chief gonna hammer won't go to the mom bring them out to him big chief can't go Thank you for listening to the Wild Wayne Unchained podcast. Make sure and follow us on social media at Wild Wayne Unchained. And for advertising or sponsorship opportunities, contact us at wildwayneunchained at gmail.com.